Jeremiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Hear now the very word of God. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the clans of the house of Israel. Thus says the Lord. What wrong did your fathers find in me when they went, that they went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless? They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in the land of desert, deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? And I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, where is the Lord? Those who handled the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend. For cross the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that that can hold no water. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Lord God, we read this indictment against Israel, and it is shocking in its breadth, and yet it is not surprising. This is what people do. They wander away from you. Lord, help us to understand the depth of Israel's sin against you and understand how we are liable to do things that are similarly bad. We ask that you would open our hearts through your Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Those of you who are sports fans may have on occasion engaged in a debate over what is the worst, most lopsided trade ever made. And this is a debate that comes up occasionally when a particularly bad trade comes to light. Right now, the Carolina Panthers trading for Bryce Young doesn't look particularly good. And certainly the San Francisco 49ers picking up Trey Lance and then letting him go for pennies on the dollar. That doesn't look good either. And those are bad trades. They're not perhaps the level of trading Babe Ruth from the Red Sox to the Yankees or Nolan Ryan for Jim Fergosi or something like that, but they're bad. But all of that is just about sports. And though sports commands our attention often, perhaps considerably more than it should, none of that is of great 
temporal significance, let alone of eternal significance. In contrast, our passage deals with a trade of tremendous eternal significance against which all these other trades pale in comparison. We're talking about Israel's exchange of the one true God for the false gods of the nations which surrounded them. It's the worst trade in human history and one that they kept making literally for centuries. Now we're going to look at the case that Jeremiah lays out here, examining first the infancy of Israel's relationship with the Lord, and then the infamy of Israel's infidelity. Finally, we're going to, for a few moments, consider what sort of trades we might be making. But before we do that, I want to take just a couple of moments to consider the call of Jeremiah the prophet, who brings forth this indictment. You see, Jeremiah is distinct from other prophets. Unlike other prophets, with the exception maybe of Ezekiel, Jeremiah is going to live through all of the things that he will foresee. Now contrast this to, say, Isaiah, who in chapter 39 prophesies about the conquest of Jerusalem by Babylon to Hezekiah, but he makes it clear to Hezekiah that this won't happen in Hezekiah's lifetime, but rather in that of his children, which pleases Hezekiah, which I always considered him kind of a jerk for thinking that. But, but Jeremiah, like most prophets, he's disbelieved in his time by the majority of Judah. Sometimes he's even had his life threatened because of that. And he's asked to personally represent the doom that's going to come in dramatic fashion, such as wearing a yoke in chapter 27 to represent the two generations of Israel which will live under the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, in our passage here, we find Jeremiah just after his call to the office of prophet, which he, just like Moses, resisted, saying that he was only a youth and he didn't know how to speak. But in our passage, he's laying out the beginning of God's indictment against Judah, which will itself carry on all the way to chapter 6. And as always, Jeremiah obediently transmits these words of judgment and pending disaster faithfully, even though he's going to be caught up in the disaster that's going to sweep through Jerusalem, the forecasts. And he begins first by looking back at this infancy of Israel's relationship with the Lord. Now, God's word to Israel through Jeremiah begins, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness. Now, such an opening statement actually reflects a couple of things. First, it reflects the patience of the Lord. Because the wandering through the wilderness included two of the most notorious incidents of Israel's disobedience. The golden calf that they made in Exodus 32 and the faithlessness of the spies who failed to enter the land in Numbers 13 and 14. We'll touch on both of those a little bit later. But it also reflects not just the patience of the Lord, but just how bad Israel has truly become. 
If a chapter in their history that includes those two incidents is remembered fondly by the Lord, well, how bad have they gotten to be now? And God recounts how he protected Israel during those days. He calls Israel his first fruits and says that anyone who would seek to devour those first fruits would have disaster come upon them. And the land into which he delivered them was far from a land of drought, darkness, and pits, but rather a land of plenty, which they were free to enjoy in peace, so long as they remained faithful to the Lord. Now, such a time was epitomized by Joshua's final address, where he says to Israel, "'Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord.'" And it was later revived under David and particularly under Solomon's kingship, where Israel saw their wealth and prosperity grow to heights that would never be duplicated. But mixed right in with this retrospective on Israel's youth is the beginning of the charges of the infamy of Israel's infidelity. Now, on the, on the heels of the call to Israel to hear what the Lord has to say, the charges against them begin in verse 5, where the first imagery of this trade that Israel has made is revealed. Here, their fathers are said, even in the midst of plenty and peace, to have gone far from the Lord and to have pursued worthlessness and become worthless. Now, this gives us a glimpse into the ironic dynamic of idolatry, which Greg Beale has written a book about called We Become What We Worship. As Israel pursued idols, they became like them. Like the idols who were deaf and blind creations of humans, Israel became slowly spiritually deaf and blind as they pursued these false foreign gods. And the good land which God gave them was itself defiled by this pursuit. The heritage that God gave them was spoiled. Famine and foreign invasion became regular occurrences. And those who were charged with Israel's spiritual well-being, well, they're at the heart of the problem. They should know the law of the Lord, but they don't know the Lord. The shepherds have transgressed against the Lord, and the prophets are prophesying by Baal, which continued into Jeremiah's day. And to emphasize this charge of pursuing worthlessness and becoming worthless, God says that all of this was a pursuit of things which do not profit. And the consequence of all of this is that instead of protecting Israel, God will contend with both Israel and her children. And in justifying this contention, God tells Israel to look from Cyprus, which is an island in the Mediterranean, to the west, to Kedar, which would have represented the far east of Israel, and see if there's ever been anything like this before, that a nation has changed its gods. In other words, you can search the world over and you'll never see a nation abandoning its gods, even though their gods are mere human handiwork. 
And what God is saying here is that Israel has committed an act of infidelity that is unknown even to the pagan nations around them. Even though those gods place harsh conditions on their subjects, like burning their own children in sacrifice. Even though those gods were often defeated by the one true God in battle, like when God wiped out the entire Assyrian army, 185,000 in all, at the gates of Jerusalem. Even in spite of all of that, those nations remain true to their gods. So Israel hasn't simply violated God's commandments. They failed even to live up to the standards of the world around them. And much like Paul's charge against the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, where he says that it is reported that there is sin among you and sin of such a kind that even the pagans won't participate in it, that's how brazenly Israel has sinned against God. And the substance of this horrible trade is summed up by God saying that Israel has committed two evils. The first is that they have exchanged their glory for that which does not profit, which is the second time God characterizes their return as something which does not profit. It's God himself who was their glory, who provided for their prosperity and defense, and they traded him for nothing other than his anger. Secondly, they are said to have exchanged the fountain of living waters for a cistern that can't even hold water. And I think the immense gulf between those two things is at least partially lost on us. Because in an arid land, the importance of water simply cannot be overstated. And most of us have not known real thirst living there. Now, years ago, Wendy and I went to Las Vegas in July. I'll admit it was my idea. And I think I was thinking something along the lines of, I live in Florida, how bad could it be? It's hot here. But it's not hot here like it is hot there. The temperature was pushing 110 degrees when we were there. And as you walk about in that outdoors, you were very quickly brought to mind that you need water in a way that you've never needed water before. And thirst became an imperative. And if you've ever been to Las Vegas or Phoenix in the summertime, it's a small window into what really was a daily struggle from Israel wandering in the wilderness right up until Jeremiah's day. Water was life itself, and finding a source of it was an absolute imperative. Land without water was just worthless. Now, in those sorts of conditions, generally you'd be happy just to have a well from which to draw. Cisterns were large bowl-like structures that were built to capture rainwater and preserve it for future use. Now, if by some chance you had a spring that brought water all the way to the surface to you, well, you had something precious indeed. 
And God is presented by something as something even well beyond that, as a fountain of living water. And you remember that term used by Jesus in John chapter 4, and later in chapter 7, as we'll see, as he claims to provide living water to the Samaritan woman he meets. It was a subtle but unmistakable claim to deity on Jesus' part. Now, if somebody actually had a fountain of living water, they would have something of infinite value. And yet, Israel is said to have exchanged such a fountain for a broken cistern that's not even capable of holding whatever water might fall into it. It is, without a doubt, the worst trade in human history, and God is exacting judgment on those who've made it. And as boneheaded as this may seem on Israel's part, it does raise a question for us, and that is, what sorts of trades are we making? Now, this is a relative, relevant question for us because Israel's infidelity should always serve as a warning to us. It's like a spiritual family history. If your father and your grandfather both died early of heart disease, well, your doctor would look at your condition in a different light, wouldn't he? That our spiritual ancestors saw fit to abandon God is an indication of our capability to do exactly the same thing. And passages like 1 Corinthians 10 and Hebrews 3 which look back at those two most infamous incidents of mass infidelity, again, the golden calf at Exodus 32 and the failure to enter the land in Numbers 13 and 14, and tie them to New Testament believers, well, that should convince us how spiritually connected we are to the worst impulses of Israel. Hebrews 3.12 says the following, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. The writer of Hebrews warns further in chapter 6, talking about those who have left the faith while, left the faith while once apparently having been earnestly a part of it. The writer gives no hope for such individuals and uses the occasion of addressing them to exhort the following in verse 11, as we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness and to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. It's thus greater diligence in our pursuit of holiness for which we should draw motivation from passages such as this one in Jeremiah. As God was a fountain of living water to Israel, Jesus is all the more to those of us who believe. Consider what Jesus says in John chapter 7, starting in verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, 
whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, at this point in redemptive history, Jesus has been glorified. And we have that Spirit within us. We have all the spiritual resources at our disposal that we could possibly need. But we need to be diligent in our application of them. As many of you know, the first question of our shorter catechism is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer, as I'm sure most of you know, is that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And I ask you this morning, how are you doing in that pursuit? Will this be your sole spiritual input for the week, or are you daily seeking to know God and live more fully for His glory? Do you get enjoyment when you're exposed to the things of God and learn more of Him? If that's not the case, pray that He would, through His Spirit, give you such enjoyment. That the Word of God would become a joy to you. That the fellowship of His people would become sweet to you. That the hope of heaven would occupy your thoughts and capture your imagination. This would be my prayer for myself as well. We have Christ, the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And to trade even a small part of him for anything else would reproduce the error of Israel. So may God continue to work faith in each of us until we see him face to face. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have sent your Son, that you've sent your Spirit, that you have spared us from many of the terrible consequences of sin that Israel had to endure. We ask now, Lord, that you would help us to fall more in love with our Savior, that you would turn our affections towards the things that please you, and that you would help us day by day to grow in our anticipation of what it will mean to be with you in heaven. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.